Hello, church. Can you stand with me as we read this uh, incredibly short passage here? Um, Acts 11, uh, 25 and 26. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day, and thank you for bringing us all here together. I pray that you be with Pastor David today as he delivers this message, and I pray that we all open our hearts and minds and take it out into our community with us. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lucas, are you concerned that last week we had an 11-year-old up here reading the scripture, and it was like, it was like 12 verses? I'm not saying. I'm just saying. In America, we are from birth inundated, almost indoctrinated with the idea, the gospel of the American dream. This, this concept that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what your background is. If you work hard enough, if you want it bad enough, you can achieve all of your dreams. You can be whatever you desire to be, right? My mom always thought that was the stupidest thing in the world. She, she would even go as far as to say it was parental malpractice for her to let me believe that. And she would use herself as an example. You see, my mom is five feet tall in heels on a footstool. Um, she is hard of hearing. She's visually impaired. And my mom would say, if my heart's desire was to be an NBA all-star, and my parents brought me up to believe if I just worked hard enough, I could do that. Then I would live my entire life feeling like I was a disappointment. I would live my entire life feeling like I just didn't try hard enough. I just didn't want it bad enough. When in the, the reality is God didn't create me to be an NBA all-star. You see, before you guys get uh, too sad and depressed about my childhood, let me tell you, my mom was actually an incredibly encouraging nurturer. She encouraged my sister and I to dream big and to work hard to achieve those dreams. But at the same time, she wanted us to recognize that we were uniquely and intentionally knit together by God. And because of that, there were some things other people could do and some things other people could achieve that we could not at the same time. There were some things we could do and some things we could achieve that they could not. And the world continues to turn. Today we find ourselves in the fourth week of a seven-week study, character study, on the New Testament personality of Barnabas. This kind of forgotten background character in the New Testament. 
why would we spend nearly two months doing a deep dive into this guy that's mentioned just a few times throughout the New Testament? So many amazing biblical characters, so many miraculous stories, so many dynamic personalities. Well, as you heard in the introduction video, the reason we are looking at Barnabas is because so often people grow up in the church and grow up studying the Bible and look at Moses and think, I do not have that type of wisdom. I don't have the courage of David. I don't have the faith of Abraham or the passion of Paul. And they look at these characters and they think, I am nothing but a disappointment because I'm not that. But you look at Barnabas and he's, he's just a dude. He's just a guy. You look at him and you think, okay, I can do that. I, I can... I can maybe be that guy. And the beauty of it is, as we begin to scratch the surface of this man named Barnabas, what we realize is he embodies the characteristics that allowed the New Testament church, the early church, to grow in in such Terrifying and uncertain circumstances. This regular guy, Barnabas, is exactly the guy that God wants each of us to be. You see, in week one, we looked at the fact that that Barnabas wasn't even his real name. It was a nickname given to him by the apostles in the early church. It meant son of encouragement. Barnabas was so encouraging to other people. They literally named him after that. In the second week, we also look at Acts 4 when Barnabas models what it looks like to be a generous giver, to give sacrificially. As as he sells off his land in a time where land ownership was everything. Sacrificing his financial well-being, his status in the community for gospel purposes. We also look at the fact that he's sacrificing his time. He's sacrificing his talents, leaving his home to travel to a place like Antioch to serve. Last week, we did look at Barnabas as he arrives at this church at Antioch, this this Gentile community of believers that were complete outcasts, outcasts from society at the time because of their desire to follow Christ. Christ, even marginalized within the church because the church was having this eternal debate, internal debate as to whether or not Gentiles could even hear the gospel, much less the idea that that God would be present among them. And Barnabas, this regular guy, goes to them and affirms The presence of God in that community affirms the movement of the Holy Spirit in that community. And and Barnabas' affirmation was the catalyst to grow the church at Antioch into quite literally one of the most important bodies of believers in history. 
And this week, we get to look at the fact that Barnabas modeled for us what it looks like to be a Christian leader. In modern culture, we are, we are fascinated by leaders, great leaders, leadership. There are, there are libraries of books written on the subject. Any weekend, you can find a weekend conference on leadership all across the country. A hundred different TED Talks, all about the qualities of leadership and great leaders and what it looks like to be a leader. You see, you see we recognize great leadership. We can name great leaders, but the trick is it's almost impossible to pin down what leadership actually is. You see, the reason for that is the qualities that are prized, the leadership qualities that are prized differ in so many different arenas. Like the classic stereotypical CEO, the high-powered executive leading a Fortune 500 company. That particular leadership prizes... um, Vision, assertiveness. It's kind of the classic type A. It's what's elevated in the boardroom. In the world of athletics, oftentimes it's motivational qualities. You know, Newt Rockney, win one for the Gipper. Social movements, it is, it's passion, it's conviction. The steadfast conviction of Martin Luther King That's the leadership that is prized in those arenas. In Silicon Valley, kind of the the engine that's driving the world right now. You You look at great leaders like Elon Musk and it's all about creativity and innovation. So if those are some of the qualities that are, that are prized in leaderships in, in the world, in modern society, what does it look like to be a leader within the church? To be a great spiritual leader, a great Christian leader. Well, the obvious first place to start are those leadership qualities that were so perfectly modeled for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Humility and and sacrifice. You know... Christ, as, as we see throughout the New Testament, you know, you look at places like Colossians 1 and you see that Christ was the head of the church. You look at other places in the New Testament, you, you see um, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, we are called to love our wives the way Christ loved the church, this thing that he led and gave himself for is what it says in Ephesians 5.25. You see, Christ as a leader was a humble servant. Two qualities that are least desired in the world of business, in the world of politics. Both today and in Christ's time, the way he led his followers was revolutionary. It was unheard of. And it started a movement that quite literally changed the world. Oswald Sanders writes, Humility is the hallmark of a spiritual leader. 
Christ told his disciples to turn away from the pompous attitudes and instead take on the lowly bearing of a servant. Nobody at that time had ever seen a leader like that. Even in 2018, we don't prize, elevate those qualities in our leaders. Not only are the characteristics of a Christian leader different, the goals of a Christian leader are different. As in the life of every Christ follower, the ultimate goal in a Christian leader is to glorify God and point others to him, right? In support of that goal, Christian leaders are also called to identify and equip a new generation of Christian leaders. You know, that's personified in Jesus as as he spent his entire three years of ministry largely pouring into 12 men. Walking with those men, praying with those men, teaching those men, mentoring those men, pouring into the lives of these 12 guys. And after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, it's that group of men that changed history. You see, it's, it's unheard of in boardrooms. I don't think Elon Musk is spending an inordinate amount of his time identifying the person that's going to take over for him. Training that person, equipping him, building him up, and then celebrating when he goes on. But spiritual leaders do just that. So right now you're thinking, all right, Hannah, that's all well and good, and I get it. But what the heck does that have to do with these two verses that Lucas read for us this morning? How do you get from these two verses in Acts 11 to the idea that Barnabas models leadership for us? I'm glad you asked. The first thing that we have to do out of these two verses in Acts chapter 11, is look at the totality of Barnabas's story. Look at what we've already learned over these last few weeks. Barnabas models these leadership qualities of humility, of sacrifice. He spends his time and his energy encouraging other people. He is willing to sacrifice his own financial well-being, his own social standing. In, in order to give to the apostles, to the church, in, in an incredibly uncertain and dangerous time in the growth of the church. He travels to, to Antioch, and instead of promoting his own ideas, he affirms the presence of God within that community. Humble, sacrificial servant. We see in the actions of Barnabas that his only desire was to pursue God and to make his name great. You see, in Acts chapter 11 in this passage, we find Barnabas, you know, surprisingly the de facto leader of this dynamic, innovative, growing ministry in Antioch. It's exactly where every pastor wants to be. Big fish, little pond... The whole world is looking at you. You're changing the paradigm, all these fun buzzwords. 
But you see, Barnabas, in, in Acts chapter 11, as the church is growing, as he becomes the leader, as he's there sacrificing his time and teaching, he recognizes that he can't hold that position too tight. He recognizes that, that he can't take that community to their full potential. And so he goes out and he seeks another leader. He goes to great length to find this man Saul up in Tarsus. This was not a quick text message. This was not FaceTime. This was not, hey, Saul, when you got a minute, catch the next train and roll down here. This was difficult to go and track him down and convince him to come. But Barnabas knew that that community needed more leaders. It wasn't just Saul. We see at the beginning of of Acts chapter 13 this shockingly diverse leadership team that, that, that Barnabas helped bring up in this church. Look with me in the first couple of verses in Acts 13, and you'll see this list. You've got Barnabas first. He's a Jew, a Levite from Cyprus. Simeon, a black African Gentile. Lucius, would have been from the north Mediterranean coast of Africa, a Jew from that area. Manan, this guy was brought up in the court of the king. Some translations will say this guy was brought up as the foster brother of Herod the king. And finally, Saul, the fire-breathing persecutor of followers of Christ. This is the leadership team that Barnabas brought together to lead this dynamic ministry, recognizing his sole perspective wasn't good enough. That group of believers deserved more. Think about the humility that it takes to do something like that when when he had the chance to be the sole leader of this group. You see some of these qualities mirrored in this group of believers in Antioch there at the the end of chapter 11, excuse me, as, as this group of believers in Antioch pulled their resources and sent relief to the church at Jerusalem in response to a severe famine that would be there. This church at Jerusalem that was ready to push them to the outside, to the periphery, under the leadership of Barnabas, this group of believers pulls their funds so that they can give relief to the Jerusalem church. Humility. Sacrifice. Raising up more Christian leaders. It's what we see in Barnabas. As a matter of fact, in Barnabas and his relationship with Saul, we have a template of what it looks like for strong Christian leaders to raise up strong Christian leaders. It starts with leading yourself. We see throughout these first chapters of Acts, Barnabas is a leader in the church, largely forgotten 2,000 years later, but he was absolutely a leader in the early years of the church. 
encouraging others, giving of his resources, giving of his time, teaching. In Acts chapter 9, that's where we have Saul's famous conversion on the road to Damascus. Saul, if you aren't familiar with his story, was uh, a Pharisee tasked with persecuting Christians. He made it his life goal to find followers of Christ, make sure they were properly punished, even to the point of death. Then dramatically Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He recognizes Christ as the Messiah. So now you have Saul kind of living between worlds. He's in Damascus. He's he's preaching Christ as the Messiah. His old Jewish buddies now want to kill him the same way he used to want to kill other Christ followers. So he can't go back to them. He wants to go to Jerusalem to be with the apostles and learn under them. The apostles are understandably a little nervous. This is the guy that for years was trying to seek us root us out and kill us. I'm not exactly sure. We want to invite him into our house. In Acts chapter 9, it's Barnabas that takes Saul under his wing, goes to the apostles and says, listen to this guy, Christ has changed him. It's Barnabas that vouches for Saul at the beginning. Step one, Barnabas is a leader. It is almost impossible to develop new leaders if you're not a leader yourself. Step two, Barnabas as a leader invites a leader to come alongside. I'll do it and I'll bring you with me. That's what we see in Acts chapter 11. As Barnabas is this de facto leader of this dynamic congregation in Antioch and he recognizes the need to bring in more leaders, he goes to great effort and find Saul to bring him in, giving Saul the opportunity to walk alongside Barnabas, to learn from Barnabas, to serve with Barnabas, this great Christian leader that was just a few steps further down the road than he was. It was under their shared leadership, Barnabas and Saul, that followers of Christ first garnered the name Christians. It was under their shared leadership that Christianity first became something other than a simple sect of Judaism. It was Barnabas' willingness to bring in another leader and equip him and raise him up. Andy Brucata was my Barnabas. When Nick and I were first called to the mission field, I arrived on the field completely ill-equipped, full of radical ideas, not having any idea what I was doing. You guys may think the only difference between that and now is that you're no longer young, <laughs> but that, that's exactly the way we arrived on the field. And, and not surprisingly, the other missionaries that were there... It, in large part, kind of kept us at an arm's distance. It was this man named Andy Brucato who had been on the field for 25 years, had planted the church. I was coming to work alongside. He had already trained up an Italian local pastor, recognizing that a foreign pastor could only take this congregation so far. 
And then he takes me under his wing, talking to all the other missionaries, talking to the congregation. Be patient. Be patient with him. He let me learn from him. He let me sit at his feet. He let me watch him serve. He eventually let me serve alongside him. If step one is being a leader yourself, step two is leading and inviting somebody alongside you. Step three is inviting someone to lead with you. Let's do this together. You see this already in Acts chapter 11 at the very end of this passage, the verses immediately following what Lucas read for us this morning, as as it's Barnabas and Saul together that are taking this love offering, this relief offering to the church at Jerusalem. In Acts 13, this incredible leadership team at the church at Antioch we see them become the first missions-sending church in history as they send Barnabas and Saul off to be the first missionaries, off to carry the gospel to these unreached places, thus setting the bar for missionaries forevermore. It's Barnabas and Saul working and serving together to share the gospel. First, it was Barnabas as a leader. Second, it was Barnabas as a leader inviting Saul to kind of come alongside. Third, it was Barnabas and Saul working together. As they are on that first missions journey, it's when we see things start to change. It's when we see the fourth phase, the most difficult phase of Christian leaders raising up other Christian leaders. Notice the progression. Acts chapter 13, verse 7. Barnabas and Saul, they're on their first missions journey together. They arrive in Cyprus. There's this kind of spiritual guru that's there. A spiritual leader alongside a local political leader. And the political leader summons Barnabas and Saul. Acts 13, verse 7. He, this spiritual guru, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. Barnabas and Saul. It's the exact way they're listed in chapter 11, verse 30, as they're going to Jerusalem with the relief offering. It's the same way they're listed in Acts 12, 25, as they're returning from Jerusalem back to Antioch, Barnabas and Saul. It's the same way they're listed in chapter 13, verse 2. As this leadership team listens to God and God says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Barnabas and Saul. So there they are in Cyprus. Summoned by this local kind of spiritual guru. This... um, This false prophet as he's described in the picture. And there's a confrontation. And in that confrontation, in verses 9 and 10, it's Saul, now called Paul for the first time, that explodes with the Holy Spirit. Read with me 13 verse 10. Paul said, 
You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now, now we know about Barnabas's character, his personality, and, and it's not hard to assume that this is not exactly the way Barnabas would have stated this. He didn't quite have the fire of Paul. But he also recognized the Holy Spirit moving in Paul. And he allowed Paul to take the lead. From that point, from that verse, everything changes. Immediately after that confrontation, in chapter 13, verse 13, as they're leaving, verse 13 says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. You see that? Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And suddenly, Paul and his companions, in a matter of four verses, it goes from Barnabas and Saul to Barnabas not even being mentioned. At their next stop, it's Paul that delivers this dynamic, fiery sermon. And from that point on, as they are listed, they're always listed as Paul and Barnabas, not the other way around. You see, Barnabas had spent years pouring into this man, vouching for this man, teaching this man, serving alongside this man. He saw the Holy Spirit move, and he seamlessly stepped into the background, into the role of mentor and supporter. And he remains there for the rest of the scriptures. Do you understand how rare that is? Can you imagine a high-powered CEO, a leader, a football coach in 2018 doing that same thing and welcoming his mentor stepping up and taking the spotlight in front of him. It's unheard of. See, not many people can go from top billing to second billing. But apparently, Barnabas recognized and realized that Jesus wasn't joking when he said the path to greatness is found in serving others. Barnabas recognized and realized that the mission is far more important than our own status. Barnabas, this forgotten personality in the New Testament is such a stark and powerful reminder that true ministry isn't found in how large our flock is. True ministry isn't found in how many people follow us. It's not found in how many people report to us. It's not found in how many people help us, in how many people volunteer for us, in how many people serve us. True Christian leadership is found in how many people we serve, 
It's found in how many people come to stand on our shoulders taller than we stood. Seeing more than we saw and doing more than we did. Here's the thing. That type of Christian leadership is something that we are all called to. It is not reserved for pastors. It's not reserved for church staff members. It's not reserved for Bible study leaders. If you are a self-professed follower of Jesus... The question is not, are you called to lead? The question is, where are you called to lead? May the Lord fill this church with leaders and leader makers in the mold of Barnabas so that we can make Christ known here in our community and around the world. Would y'all pray with me? Lord, my confession to you is that I do not have the faith of Abraham. I do not have the wisdom of Moses. I do not have the courage of David. I couldn't have stared down that giant with nothing but three rocks and a sling. But it is my desperate prayer this morning that you make me more like Barnabas. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.